Well, we, uh, I'm here for, been here, I've been here for four weeks altogether, and uh, there are seven parables in Matthew chapter 13. But if you realize that, you might want to think about that. Can you look at it perhaps this afternoon, see what the seven parables are? Uh, we looked at the opening parable, which is the main one, of course, the first week, and then last week we looked at another two, and today we're going to look at another two. And then next week we're going to look at another two. So, so one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> uh, I don't know, maths was never my strong point. So we're just going to look at those two very short parables uh, today. The parable of the mustard seed and uh, the east. And you'll find that in Matthew chapter 13 in, 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 the, in the corner post. You know the nursery, you know the nursery rhyme? Uh, perhaps you remember it from when you were a kid. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? Uh, do you remember that? Or, yeah, good. Do they still tell children that? A lot of these nursery rhymes are very sinister backgrounds and secret meanings. I, I think that's a quite... I'm not sure whether that's a safe one or not, but... Uh, but let's, um, let's ask Jesus the same question, shall we? Jesus, Jesus, son of David, how does your kingdom grow? And Jesus gives us these, these two parables, uh, these two word pictures, because that's what a parable is, uh, the mustard seed and uh, the yeast, to show us what his kingdom is like and, and, and how it grows in the world. And uh, if you were a Jew listening to Jesus back then, you would be massively surprised by what Jesus is saying here. You see, when you think of a kingdom growing in the world, well, you think of Red Square, don't you? And Putin and the others, and all those dictators like the guy in North Korea. You think of uh, massive parades of soldiers and uh, tanks and, and missiles and helicopters flying overhead and, and fighter planes. and. You think of military might and majesty, you think of conquering lands and, and taking cities, don't you? When you think of a, a kingdom growing in the world. If you were a Jew in Jesus' day, it, it, you would be expecting the Messiah to come and, and smash all their enemies. That's what they thought was going to happen. They thought that God's kingdom would come with power and, and great glory. Jesus, Jesus, son of David, how does your kingdom grow? And Jesus says it will grow from the smallest and most insignificant of beginnings, a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, so small you can hardly see it, and it will grow quietly and secretly like yeast in a lump of dough. So it's, what I have to say to you this morning is pretty obvious and it's very straightforward and I don't think it's going to take me as long as it usually does. So. Uh, first of all, I've got two points, two main points that I want to bring out, two obvious points, and then I've got a bunch of applications. So, my first point is this, and they're both there in the corner post, they're very profound points, as you can see. Uh, my first point is this, with apologies to Paul Kelly, whose song I think this is, From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Jesus says, look at verse 31, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which... A man took and planted in his field, and though it is the smallest of all seeds, does Jesus know his, his botany? Uh, it's not the smallest of all seeds. 
And when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. Strictly speaking, not so sure about that. But you see, this isn't a botany lesson. Strictly speaking, the mustard seed is not the smallest of seeds. It's probably the, the smallest seed that they were used to handling. It's tiny, it's about, a, uh, I think it's about a millimeter in diameter. But you see, Jesus is, is speaking, he's not speaking scientifically here, he's speaking proverbially. This was a well-known Jewish proverb. For example, when the rabbis wanted to speak about a minute drop of blood, uh, this is what they would say. They would talk about, uh, they would talk about a, a drop like a mustard seed. It, it was a well-known proverb. Uh, and Jesus is, 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 is speaking proverbially here about the mustard seed. And, and, and to be botanically accurate, it, it, that mustard seed doesn't actually grow into a, a tree. It's more like a, a big shrub or a, or a bush, which, well, the commentators disagree about how big it grows. Some say four to five foot tall. Others say eight to ten feet tall. A pretty big bush, but not a huge tree. And, and, and here's the first point I want you to, to understand. That is significant. That is significant because if Jesus wanted to impress them, if Jesus wanted to, uh, to show the greatness and the grandeur of his kingdom, then he would have chosen a human pine, wouldn't he? Yeah. Or a, a cedar of Lebanon. He wouldn't have chosen a mustard seed. You see, that's not his point. He's not trying to, 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 to... He doesn't need to explain to them that the kingdom of God is going to be great and magnificent. He doesn't, they, they, they knew that already. What they didn't know is how it would grow. This great and glorious kingdom that has been promised by the prophets. This great and glorious kingdom that they've all been waiting for. It will grow from the smallest and most insignificant of beginnings. To fill the whole earth. So, so look what it says in verse 32. The birds will come and perch in its branches. Now if you were paying attention and we have the passages read. Uh, it, that's from our Old Testament reading in Ezekiel, isn't it? It's an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, chapter 17 rather, in verse 23, where, where the birds symbolize the Gentiles, the Gentile nations coming to know the God of Israel. That's, that's what Ezekiel is prophesying. So th this is no mere backyard shrub. It's more like, uh, you know, it's more like the magic beanstalk that Jack sowed. Not Jack Glover, but another Jack. It's like the magic beanstalk that Jack uh, sowed in his back garden with the branches getting bigger and taller until they pushed their way up into the clouds. And you see, my friends, that is precisely what is happening right now as I speak to you. I mean, did you know that, for example, that uh, one missionary organization, the uh, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, before COVID anyway, um, probably even more so during COVID, uh, did you know that that organization which flies missionaries around the world actually flies to more countries than any commercial airline in the world? Did you know that? That should impress us. <laughs> it does. It does, thank you. <laughs> See, it's, this is what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. It's, 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 ha it's been happening for 2,000 years, of course. There are as many Christians in China as there are in the Communist Party. This, this little mustard seed, it's growing. It's spin a globe and 
you know, spin a globe and randomly put your finger on it. And the chances are that there's a bird in the branch. If you know what I mean, of course. Here, here's this, this great mustard tree filled with all the birds of the air, just as Jesus said it would. There are exotic Brazilian birds and inscrutable Chinese and laid-back Australians, so laid-back they almost fall out of the tree. <laughs> and dour Scots and stiff upper-beaked English and soaring Welsh eagles. <laughs> and the sight and the sound of it is awesome, isn't it? I mean, just look, look around the room this morning. The kingdom of heaven, this, this little mustard seed planted in Galilee 2,000 years ago has, has grown into, into a tree. The biggest, longest living kingdom in history. The Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Aztec Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Mongol Empire, the Roman Empire, the British Empire. Christianity has outlived them all by 2,000 years and counting. It, it, it spread over all the earth and all kinds of exotic birds. Here you are this morning, all kinds of exotic birds <laughs> perching in its branches. Isn't that right? And all from such insignificant and unimpressive beginnings. Think of, think of it. Think of G Jesus of Nazareth, born in an obscure village. The child of a peasant woman. Never wrote a book. Never held office. Never had a family or owned a home. Didn't go to college. Never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. Did none of the th things usually associated with greatness, and yet today, he is the central figure of human history. Even though people try to deny it, even though they try and you know, redefine what uh, BC and AD is, before the common year and whatever the other one is, even though people try to deny it, he's, he is the central figure of human history. Someone has said, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the king, kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as much as this one solitary life. From little things. Big things grow. The mustard seed. The smallest of seeds, so small you can hardly see it, and yet it grows into the largest bush in your backyard, and the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. And then it says, verse 33, he told them still another parable. And here's the second point. In the kingdom of God, a little goes a long, long way. See, these two parables are similar, and they're both speaking about the growth of the kingdom, but they're not identical. They're not making exactly the same point. In the kingdom of God, this is the second point, a little goes a long, long way. Look at it there in verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that, that a woman took and mixed into about, in the NIV it says, about 60 pounds of flour. That's, that's enough to feed 150 people. That's a big lump of dough. And this woman mixed this yeast into the, into the flour until it worked all through the dough went out. That's a huge loaf of bread. I mean, no, nowadays, of course, it's the men who make the bread, not the women, isn't it? I mean, we used to be the bread winners, but now we're the bread makers. <laughs> if you're a sensitive new age guy like me, you know how to make bread. <laughs> 
it's easy to spike bread machine. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, don't be fooled by that. I remember when we first had a bread machine, uh, I, I remember proudly uh, misreading the instructions and putting in a tablespoon of yeast instead of a teaspoon <laughs> with dramatic results. <laughs> you see, the thing about yeast, with, with yeast, a little goes a long, long way. A tiny pinch will permeate the whole lump and cause the dough to rise and fill your house with the delicious aroma of fresh bread. There's nothing like it. There's something about the smell of fresh bread, isn't there? Supermarkets have been known to uh, put it into their air conditioning vents to entice customers in from the street. Jesus says, that's how my kingdom grows. It's like yeast in the dough. Secretly and, and mysteriously doing its work. It, it, it's, it's hidden. It, it works invisibly, but it has enormous influence and power to change things. In, in, in Luke, in Luke chapter 17 and verse 20, Jesus told a, a bunch of Pharisees, about, they were asking him about the kingdom, and he said to them, the kingdom, the kingdom of God doesn't come in ways that can be observed by you. You won't observe. You can't say here it is or there it is. The kingdom of God doesn't come you know, marching down the streets with a big show of power. The kingdom of God doesn't come in ways that can be observed. He says, it is within you. It is within. Like yeast in the dough doesn't come with an outward show of pomp and pageantry. You can't say here it is or there it is. It's not an earthly kingdom at all. And yet it penetrates every nation on earth. It penetrates every level of society. It penetrates every area of life. The gospel. See, it's interesting, you know, when you read the, the New Testament and uh, you, you look there for some kind of teaching about evangelism. You have to look very hard because there's hardly any teaching about evangelism in the New Testament or in the Old Testament for that matter. When you look at the, at the New Testament, what you find there is not that the early church, they didn't have any great strategy of evangelism. And yet, you know, the book of Acts tells us they turned the world upside down. They turned the world upside down. How do they do that? They, they reached the world because they lived lives that demonstrated the kingdom. And that was infectious. It was the good infection that C.S. Lewis talks about in mere Christianity. And the, the gospel in those early years was caught as well as taught. Oh yes, of course, they had to explain and give the reason for the hope that was in them. But the gospel is caught as well as taught. And God's kingly rule, that's, that's how my kingdom grows, Jesus says. Did you know, uh, for example, that the first institution for the blind was founded by a Christian monk called Thalassius? The first free dispensary was founded by Apollonius, a Christian merchant. The first hospital was founded by Fabiola, a Christian woman. Paganism doesn't produce compassion. Christianity does. Paganism leaves sick newborn babies on the hillside to die. Christianity takes them in to enable them to live. What is that? That is the yeast in the dough. That's what's happening in the early, 
uh, early decades of the, of the Roman Empire. It's the yeast in the dough. It's the message of Jesus transforming people's priorities. It's, it's the aroma of Christ in the world. One of the great, greatest periods of social improvement in England was during the latter part of the 18th century and, uh, and throughout the 19th century. While France was having a bloody revolution in the name of the Enlightenment, England had a massive revival under the preaching of Wesley and Whitfield, which totally transformed the British Isles. Social conditions in England at that time were, were horrific. Gin palaces, young children, alcoholics, young children being forced down to work in the mines, pushed up chimneys as chimney sweeps, huge corruption, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. And then God raised up John Wesley and, he's, and George Whitfield. And George Whitfield's great sermon was, you must be born again. And when somebody asked him, why do you keep preaching you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. And there was a great revival, and, and hundreds and thousands of people were converted under the preaching of, of Whitfield, including people like William Wilberforce and, and the Earl of Shaftesbury and others, many others. And, and that led to the abolition of slavery and, and prison reform and uh, the improvement of working conditions and even the, the emergence of the trades unions, which is, I think is a great thing. So working class men had some, uh, some kind of protection from their they're rich overlords who are treating them like slaves. And, and all that, came. how did that happen? It is the yeast in the dough. It is loads of people being converted, becoming Christians. Do you see? That's how Jesus' kingdom grows in this world. Transforming society, penetrating people's lives, affecting whole communities. In 1904, there was a massive revival in Wales. Before my time, I come from Wales. It's my home, home, to, my home country. But just before my time, I'm sure you know that uh, a million people were converted. I mean, the Wales was about—it's probably about three million people in the population. A million people were converted in the height of the revival, which was just a few months. The revival lasted for a few years, but during those few months, and, and uh, in fact, during the, the the time of the revival in Wales, a million people were converted. And Wales became known as the land of the white gloves because uh, when, uh, when magistrates and judges had no crimes to try, they would wear white gloves. And for the whole period of two or three years, there were no crimes. The yeast had got into the dough, do you see? People's lives were being penetrated by the gospel. That's Jesus, Jesus, son of David. How does your kingdom grow? That's how it grows. Now, of course, not, it's hidden. It's secret. When there's a massive revival, even the world has to take notice. But normally, it's, it's, it's just something that you, you don't really see. And if you do see it, well, unbelievers try to explain it away, as they did with the revivals. But it's hidden. It's secret. It's mysterious. You can have the highest IQ in the world and not see this. James Watson and, and Francis Crick were awarded the 1962 Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA. And in his acceptance speech, James Watson said something really stupid. 
For, for reasons best known to himself, uh, he, he chose to use the occasion to have a go at Jesus and at Christianity. This is what he said, you know, receiving the Nobel Prize for, uh, what is it, discovering the structure of DNA. And then there's, there's some theories that he might have not, might not have been his own research, but anyway, that's another story. But maybe it explains why he said this. Because this is what he said, this is what he said in his acceptance speech. I didn't get to be where I am by meekness. What future can there possibly be for a religion that promotes self-denial and humility? It's doomed to failure from the start. That's what he said. He said, the two stupidest sentences in the English language are, love thine enemy, and the meek shall inherit the earth. <laughs> what a fool. A brilliant fool, but a fool nevertheless. Blind unbelief will never be impressed by the kingdom of heaven. Don't, don't think you're going to be able to impress Hobart with the gospel. They don't want to see it. Remember what Paul said in Corinthians? He said, the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to the natural man. He won't understand. These things are spiritually discerned. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a I love Nicodemus in lots of ways. John chapter 3 was the passage that Jesus, that Jesus used to save me. Way, way back in history when I became a Christian. Nicodemus, he was a seeker. He, came, he, was, a, he was the teacher in Israel. So he, he was a bit of a Bible nerd. He knew his Bible. Uh, but he, he was a genuine seeker. And he came to Jesus by night, we're told. And, uh, and then Jesus said to him, uh, Nicodemus, and he was, you know, he, he, he was courteous, he was polite. Good teacher, he said. We know you're, you must be, uh, uh, come from God by the things that you do. He was, he was courteous, he was polite, he was genuinely seeking, he was in, very intelligent, he knew his Bible back to front, and Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. What are you talking about? I mean, does that mean I have to climb back into my mother's womb and start out all over again? Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if I tell you earthly things and you don't understand, how are you going to understand spiritual things? Nicodemus, Unless you are born again, you will not even see the kingdom of heaven, let alone enter into it. Do you realize that, my friends? Do you realize that about, about your family and about the people that you're witnessing to and you're concerned about? Are you praying for them? Because unless something supernatural and miraculous happens, unless they are born from above, born again, they will not see, let alone enter. They won't know the kingdom of heaven is all about. Now let me apply this to you then as I, as I close. A bunch of applications. First one is this, don't despise the day of small things. Remember, a little goes a long, long way in gospel work. From little things, big things grow. So that conversation over the photocopier at work or at the school gates, exchanging a few words with your neighbors, teaching kids in Sunday school, Inviting someone to a meeting. Kingdom work seems so ordinary, doesn't it? And unimpressive. unimpressive. Just saying your prayers and living for Jesus every day. That's what the early Christians did. And they turned the world upside down. That's how the East works. The dramatic results. So don't, don't despise the day of small things. And the second thing is this, don't despair of ever seeing kingdom growth. See, it, it's no accident that, that these two little parables 
a place slap bang in the middle of the one we looked at last week, the wheat and the weeds. Matthew does that deliberately because it's what we call a Mark, Mark sandwich in Mark's Gospel. He sandwiches these two little parables in the middle of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He does that deliberately to show us that God's kingdom grows even in the midst of satanic opposition. This whole section in Matthew's Gospel is introduced to the very provocative statement that Jesus makes. He says, since the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and violent men take it by storm. That, that is the history of, of our world. That is the history, certainly, of the Western world. The kingdom of heaven it, it, is growing in the midst of severe opposition. Victor Hugo, the French writer, says this. He says, like the trampling of a mighty army is the force of an idea whose time has come. Like the trampling of a mighty army is the force of an idea whose time has come. It advances, this is how the kingdom advances, it, it advances not by, by, by force or military might, but by persuasion. And, and nothing will stop it filling the earth. The day will come, the Bible says, when the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. So don't despise the day of small things, and don't despair of ever seeing kingdom growth. And the third one is this, don't forget that there's still room in those branches for many more birds. There are still unreached people groups in this world. There are still regions in the world where the gospel is not growing very much, Australia included. Places like Japan and Jordan, Italy and Ireland and so many other places. Jesus said this message of the kingdom must first be preached to all nations and then the end will come. So don't forget there's still room in those branches. Don't stop sowing the seed. Don't stop supporting world mission. And closer to home, there are still unreached people groups in this city, aren't there? Just stop for a moment and think, who are the people that are not in Cornerstone Church this morning? Why aren't they here? Think about who we're not reaching with the gospel. What are we going to do about that? There are tribes of people. There are street kids, there are high flyers, there are migrants, there are all sorts of people in Hobart, there are all sorts of tribes of people that we haven't, we haven't reached yet. The job's not done, it's only beginning. And let me say this lastly, uh, by way of application. Don't despise the day of small things, don't uh, despair of ever seeing kingdom growth, don't forget that there's still room in the branches for many more. And, and let this vision of the kingdom that Jesus gives us here today, let that shape your life. Shape your church life. See, God uses very ordinary people to bring in his kingdom. He uses mustard seeds, not human kinds. And Paul reminds the Corinthians of that, doesn't he? Uh, they, they were a church intoxicated by the glitz and the glamour. They'd have strobe lighting. And they'd have... Uh, Real coffee. <laughs> and uh, they'd, uh, you know, they'd, uh, they'd have expensive sound systems. And, uh, but that's not the way Christ's kingdom grows. They'd, uh, their preacher would, would have a, an impressive beard and skinny jeans. 
But that's not the way Christ's kingdom grows. He doesn't use human pines. He uses mustard seeds. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church, you know, intoxicated by the glitz and the glamour of the super apostles. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Not many. God has chosen what's foolish in the world. It's a bit of a put down, isn't it? <laughs> consider your calling, brothers. Remember who you are. God has chosen you. He's chosen the foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. That's how his kingdom grows. No hype, no exaggerated claims, no trying to impress the world. Why is it that we think, you know, we have to compete with the world to reach the world? That's not how my kingdom grows, Jesus says. William Carey was a, a shoe repairer, a cobbler. We know him as the father of the, of modern, of the modern missionary movement. But William Carey was, um, he was slight, he was uh, short-sighted, and, and by all accounts, a very unimpressive looking man. God sent him to India for 42 years. He never returned to his, his native England. He spent 42 years hidden away in India, translating the Bible into a score of different Indian languages, and he hardly saw any results in his lifetime. He called himself God's plodder. <laughs> I can plod, he said, that's my only genius. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. That's the kind of person that God uses to advance his kingdom in the world. Plodders, not superstars. Are you willing to be a mustard seed for Christ? To become a nothing, to remain a nobody? To wait a long time to see any results? Welcome to gospel ministry, because that's what it's like. <laughs> To plant seeds today that, that won't grow into anything recognizable until after you're dead and gone? To bury yourself away in obscurity like William Carey? That's the way the kingdom grows. It's hidden. But it's unstoppable. It's inconspicuous, but it's, it's irrepressible. It grows from the smallest of beginnings to fill the earth. It grows out of all proportion to what you might have expected. And it's still doing that, isn't it? Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, all over the world, this gospel, this message of the kingdom is, is growing, is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. It's happening. It's happening right now. I think a third of the world's population profess to be Christians. All over the world, this, this message of God's kingdom, which seemed to be so unimpressive. Brought to us by a man who ended up on a cross. <laughs> All over the world, this... Paul can say this 25 years after that happened. Colossians, chapter 1, verse 6. All over the world, this message, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And then he says something, in the same breath, he says something really very important. He says, just as it has been doing in you, in you, 
since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Did you see what the message is? It's a message of grace. God's grace. That's our message for the world. We're not there to lay the law down. We're not there to whip people. We're there to talk to them about how generous God is. God so loved the world. This world that's in rebellion against him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the message of the kingdom. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. It's a message of grace. But you see, what Paul is saying here is this, that for that message to spread all around the world, if we want to reach the world for Christ, we need to assimilate it ourselves. You see what he's saying? It needs to permeate our lives like yeast in the dough. See what he says? We need to grasp God's grace in all its truth. We need to become grace-filled people if we're going to reach the world. Are we? We need to be living in line with the gospel that we preach to others. Are we? Those of us who pride ourselves on, we believe in the doctrines of grace. Do we display the grace of those doctrines? In our interaction with others, especially towards those of a different worldview to ours. Let's pray. May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day, by his love and power, controlling all I do and say. May his beauty rest upon me, as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only him. Amen.